This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, David Rutledge with you for The Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. This week, critical thinking, why we need it and what we can be up against when we try to argue for more of it in a society where sensible civic discourse seems to be fraying at the seams. People think one thing is more important than truth, and that is coherence. Uh, If their worldview is nicely coherent and they've got these theories of how people act and why they act that way and everything about that worldview is consistent with the way they interpret the world, um, then that feels true. We mistake that sense of coherence for truth. This is, I think, you know, one of the strongest reasons why simply telling people facts and making appeals to critical thinking won't work. We have to actually engage with people to understand their worldview and where they're coming from. And indeed to try and ask, could they explain it to us in some detail? And in doing so, we can at least get a glimmer of what that view of coherence is. That's Peter Ellerton. He's the founding director of the University of Queensland's Critical Thinking Project. Peter has a particular interest in the arguments swirling around climate change and the challenges that most of us face when we're not climate scientists, but we still want to be able to spot misinformation and argue solidly against it. And we will get to climate change a little later in the program. But first, critical thinking is one of those concepts that look like they don't need a lot of unpacking. Most of us tend to assume that we're already perfectly competent critical thinkers in the way that we assume we're perfectly okay at blinking or swallowing. So when Peter Ellerton says that critical thinking is something we need to learn to do better, what exactly is this skill? Right, well, it's not a number of things. And I think that's a good place to start as well. Uh, Let's say what it's not, so we can um, maybe bust a few myths around this. The first thing that critical thinking is not is just analytical thinking. Uh, It's not just sophisticated or even difficult thinking. It's more than that. So we might um, have expertise in a particular domain which allows us to know something deeply about our area and solve problems in those areas, but that doesn't mean we're necessarily thinking critically. Analytical thinking is not the same thing. Computers can do analytical thinking. Um, So it can't be just that. The other thing that critical thinking isn't is just being intelligent to whatever extent we can understand what that means. There's a lot of people I think are quite intelligent who may not be the best thinkers I know. And uh, most of the people I work with, I'd say, are probably smarter than me, but at least I've learned to think in certain ways, which which I think are effective. So given that it's not about that, what what is it about? Um, Well, one aspect of critical thinking must be that we are metacognitive, which is to say that we're aware of some aspects, at least, of our own thinking um, and that we have some intentionality behind that. So we can understand how we might arrive at certain decisions. Um, We're aware of the inferential chains or pathways that we follow to come to other decisions. So that's a very important aspect of it, to be aware of our thinking. But it's just as important as we're being aware of our thinking to be evaluative of our thinking and to make our thinking itself an object of study, even as we might be solving complex problems with it. And it's that evaluative component which says, well, you know, was that a good way to to go? Um, am Am I thinking in a way that is commensurate with getting the best answer regularly? Those kinds of questions, that kind of interrogation, I think. If you're doing that to your thinking, then you are thinking critically. Is there some sort of 
value judgment or or appeal to normativity in there though because I, I went and did some googling on on definitions of critical thinking and they tend to make this appeal to normativity the idea that there's some sort of universal rational standard that we can apply in any given situation is that in fact the case Oh, it's a bit trickier, I think. Um, one thing we can say is that it's not enough to simply describe how we think. You know, we can understand a lot of how we think through psychology and, and through cognitive science and other areas. But if we want to understand how we ought to think, well, that's a philosophical endeavour. There's no experiment we can run that will give us that answer. So we have to pay a lot of attention to concepts of rationality and, and, and what makes for a good reason. I don't think that there's necessarily a universal standard we can apply to that. But what we can say, I think, is that the way we understand rationality um, is socially mediated, that we together create the norms of inquiry uh, in the contexts in which it matters to us. And that's an important way of understanding, I think, rationality. And, and to see it far more, in fact, as a social competence than we do as an individual faculty. That's really interesting. Does that mean then that 21st century critical thinking in the West, say, could be a very different undertaking from 16th century critical thinking in the Islamic world, for example, if these norms of rationality are socially constructed? Are they sort of culturally coded to that extent that we see differences across time and place? I think to some extent that they are. And the extent to which they are are usually based in some <clears throat> significant um, cultural or social context. But that's not to say that there aren't core similarities between them and that, you know, understanding rationality as a way in which we can share and develop and work towards things that matter and are meaningful to each of us is an important element of that, I think. Um, now, that doesn't mean to say that we don't have some, if not quite subjective, at least very strong intersubjective ways in which we can determine what good thinking is. Um, and, you know, argumentation and logic are an important part of that, but they're far from the whole picture when it comes to what good thinking is. You've written that a key component of critical thinking is the ability to be self-reflective and to, to critically evaluate one's own beliefs and opinions. But as you also point out, this is a skill that can't be directly transmitted in the way that you might show someone how to solve a mathematical problem. Self-reflective evaluation, it seems to be more of a dispositional thing, a uh, temperamental thing. So how do you teach it? What we try and do in the teaching of good thinking, it's, it's a bit like learning a language. You, you can't do it simply by the transmission of content. You have to do it in context. You have to, when you learn a language, you have to speak with somebody and you have to watch for their reaction to see if you're making meaning and getting your point across well or not and then modify things to suit. And the same thing is true when we're trying to rationally engage with each other. We have to figure out what's working and what's not. So there is a very strong social component to teaching critical thinking. Um, whilst we might have some technical knowledge about critical thinking, which includes things like, you know, the nature of argumentation and, and what makes for a good argument. We also have some the need to apply a set of values to our work and to the work of others. And these values of, are things like um, accuracy and precision and clarity and significance and relevance and simplicity and reproducibility and coherence and all the things that we value in good thinking. And it's in 
helping students apply those values to their own work discerningly um, that I think a lot of the, the hard yards is done in teaching people to think well. It's interesting. We've talked a little about the way in which social media is a hostile environment to some degree for critical thinking. And given that young people in these formative years are so deeply engaged with and on social media, is that something that you've noticed over the years in, in working with students, that the critical thinking is becoming more difficult to teach or more difficult for them to absorb given the amount of time they're spending on social media? No, I haven't. Not for young people. Uh, for older people, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, y- young people are quick to adopt particular positions and ideas, but they're also quick to change uh, if they think there's a good reason to do so. Um, you know, the older we get, the more we tend to integrate our ideas and opinions with our sense of identity and an attack on anything that we might think or opinion we might offer, we often see as an attack on ourselves. And so we've kind of ossified in that sense. But young people, I think, um, still have that flexibility. And indeed, um, despite our best efforts sometimes, a curiosity and willingness to learn and to change. The capacity for doubt and and for scepticism seems to be a hallmark of critical thinking. How much of a challenge does that present in pedagogical contexts where you're wanting to instill a certain set of non-negotiable values and goals in the minds of students? Well, it depends on what those values and goals might be. It's certainly important that we get across the content and the knowledge that we need students to have. There's, there's no question about that, that, that knowledge and content is important. But it's not enough for students just to know things. We want them to do things with that knowledge. And the word we have for doing things with knowledge is thinking. So to the extent that we value, for example, a knowledge economy in which what we're valuing is the production of new knowledge, we must value thinking. Um, well, that's what it means. Um, but a certain kind of thinking, not just thinking in general. Well, effective inquiry and the kind of thinking that is effective in the context of the inquiry that anyone might be undertaking. And to do that really well, it has to be critical. And that's critical um, to the extent that we're constantly evaluating and trying to improve our own thinking about something. It's, it's certainly possible that you can learn a lot simply by following the methodology that you're taught. So here's how you solve this kind of problem, um, you know, drill you in that, and then you might become effective at that. Um, but that's not critical thinking. Um, you might develop a certain competence and perhaps that's all you need and that's fine. But it's still not critical thinking. It's when we go beyond that and make our thinking as well an object of study as well as the the problem we're trying to solve um, that we're talking about thinking critically. So what would you say to a student then who said or or who displayed behaviour that indicated something like, you know, I want to be a poet, I consider myself to be a very creative type and I find the discipline of critical thinking compromises my creative flow. Right. Is that a is that a ridiculous hypothetical, or is that is that a problem that you actually encounter? No, I see that I see that in adults. Um, they, for some reason, have adopted this false dichotomy between uh, these notions of, of of creativity and flow, if you like, and uh, you know the, the chrome and steel of analytical thinking. Um, but that's a false dichotomy. Um, critical and creative thinking can't um, move too far from each other without both atrophying. They rely on each other intimately. Um, One of the aspects of critical thinking that is most valuable is the ability to challenge assumptions and to 
understand the frames in which we're operating and to, and to devise new frames and to come up with the best questions to open up lines of inquiry. And that ability to ask the right question, to be penetrating with that insight is enormously creative. And without it, you just can't have um, anything more than a two-dimensional uh, critical thinking platform. This is RN. I'm David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. And our guest this week is Peter Ellerton from the School of Historical and Philosophical Inquiry at the University of Queensland. We're talking about critical thinking and how to promote its efficacy in a post-truth age. Are you a climate scientist? I'm certainly not. And I find it a little frustrating sometimes when people who deny the reality of anthropogenic climate change put forward confident assertions about the failures of climate science that I don't feel qualified to evaluate, particularly when I also feel that they're not qualified to make those assertions. And this is where critical thinking comes in. Well, I think what we have to focus on is the nature of the inquiry that people are undertaking. Um, because it is the nature of inquiry that gives whatever uh, credibility we might grant to their conclusions. So how, is, how are the scientists operating? What is their methodology and how are they going about doing it? And how are those who criticise the science going about doing it? Now, when we look at that, we see a pretty clear distinction between the credibility of inquiry in those two areas. Science, of course, is uh, self-correcting, eventually, a process that demands peer review, that demands sound argumentation, uh, that demands a rigorous interpretation of evidence. And, you know, those things are are the things that we recognise about science. And even if we don't know enough science to make a decision ourselves about whether the earth is warming, we certainly trust the process of science and that people are following it as they should. So that's where the distinction goes. But the point of the inquiry against accepting climate change is that so much of it is actually provided for you. You don't actually have to inquire yourself. If you would like to not accept the conclusion that the earth is warming, there are whole industries whose job it is to provide you with reasons why you don't have to do it. And you don't have to think for yourself. You can you can accept those things and you don't need to interrogate those processes because they'll give you those as well. So you can simply adopt this reasoning chain in the same way you'd choose some clothes off a shelf and say, well, I like the looks of that one. I'll try that one on. And, you know, science is hard. Even trying to understand how science works is hard. And a lot of people don't want to do the hard intellectual yards. But they'd like to claim the badge. And so they call themselves sceptics. Um, but, you know, to be a sceptic, it's not enough simply to deny stuff and to say that it's not the case. You have to, you have to of course, doubt and question. But then you have to listen to the answer. Uh, if you don't do that, you can't claim the title. So is it the case then that in countering climate misinformation, what we need to be doing, given that we're not climate scientists, or most of us, is to be bringing critical thinking techniques to bear on the argument rather than arguing the toss over particular truth claims? Well, one way to understand the current arguments around climate science is to understand the nature of argument itself. Now, the process of, of coming to scientific conclusions is pretty well established. But what myself and my, my colleagues, uh, Dave Kincaid and John Cook, um, have done is produced a, a paper that talks about 
the ways in which people try and refute climate science. We've looked at the arguments that they put up, a deep analysis of those argument structures, and we've seen that every one of those argument structures is, is flawed. Now, we can do that even without understanding, without you know, great depth, at least, the nature of the science. Um, simply looking at the argument structure and analysing the argument structure points out where they've made errors in logic. Uh, and understanding about good thinking is sometimes enough to make a decision, even if you don't know the technical details. So let's have an example then. Can you give me an example of a climate denialist claim that can be effectively taken on by means of critical thinking and, and how that refutation might proceed? Oh, well, there's many you could choose from. I suppose one of the most common ones is that um, the idea that uh, the Earth has always changed its climate or at least has done so many times in the past and now it's doing it again. So, therefore, uh, it's a natural process and we did not be concerned. Now, there's a lot wrong with that argument. You know, I, I might say, look, I can't possibly be guilty of murdering this person. People have died in the past from natural causes, so this must be a, a natural cause. Uh, so it's either looking at argument structure or offering, as I just did, a parallel argument where you show the same argument structure but point out that in this case it's absurd. And we see then that, well, yes, of course the Earth's climate has changed in the past. Uh, it's, it, we know that because scientists have told us uh, that's how we know it. But the rate of change at the moment seems to exclude all natural factors. And so when we add that information in to the argument structure as, a, as a, an extra premise, we find we can't come to the same conclusion. So that analysis of argument structure gives us a, a high resolution to interrogate the quality of the argument. There's a certain claim, though, that you often hear about scientific consensus, which is that the so-called settled science regarding climate change is actually far from being settled. And, and if it is settled, then we shouldn't trust it because where you have consensus, there you have bad science, right? And scientists shouldn't be marching in lockstep. Now, that's a claim about the nature of how science works. And many people would say that it has a germ of truth. So how does critical thinking untangle that kind of claim? Well, it's an analysis of what we mean by those terms. I mean, if we, if we say scientists have a consensus, you know, we can find many examples in which scientists had a consensus about something uh, and it was wrong. Uh, that's perfectly understandable because that's how science works. We all, we all rest at positions for which we have the best reasons to adopt them. And you can always find examples when people agree and they're wrong. So that's trivially true. But the idea that a consensus is evidence for groupthink or error is nonsense because we also have a consensus about things like gravity is an attractive force or the mass of an electron or the age of a panda, average age of a panda. You know, these things we have consensus for. It's nonsense to say that because we have consensus, we have groupthink. What we have to look for is the, again, the nature of the inquiry that led to that consensus and why do we have that consensus? But it's much more than consensus, of course. It's also consilience, which is coming to the same conclusion from a variety of different fields of study, which is an important indicator uh, that we're on to the right track. Uh, there's just so much wrong with the idea that a consensus means conspiracy. Yeah, the, the thing that I find quite wearying, I suppose, but also quite interesting about climate change denial is that you often get the impression that when people talk about climate change, 
they're using it as an avatar for a much larger cluster of concerns and opinions. So when someone says that climate change is a hoax, they're also making a point about greenies and leftists and UN and the UN and the ABC and all the things that they don't like, which indicates that climate denialism could be as much a badge of tribal identification as anything else, which means that critical thinking isn't necessarily going to make much headway against it. Well, not unless the people who are doing those things think critically um, for themselves. Um, but you're right, of course, that you know appeals to rationality and indeed the facts only have limited traction. And we often think by association. So, you know, look, the science of climate change is hard. I don't quite know how to deal with that, but I do know what I think about hippies. And that gives me my conclusion. I transfer the conclusion from what I feel over here or think over here to the issue of climate change, I think by association. And look, the sad reality is that people think one thing is more important than truth, and that is coherence. Uh, if their worldview is nicely coherent and they've got these theories of how people act and why they act that way and everything about that worldview is consistent with the way they interpret the world, um, then that feels true. We mistake that sense of coherence for truth. This is, I think, you know, one of the strongest reasons why simply telling people facts and making appeals to critical thinking won't work. We have to actually engage with people to understand their worldview and where they're coming from. And indeed to try and ask, could they explain it to us in some detail? And in doing so, we can at least get a glimmer of what that view of coherence is, then begin discussions to perhaps move away or change the structure of that. But while they have that view that climate change is a hoax, because it's the UN who are doing conspiracy for this or because it's it's the World Banks or whatever it might be, while that whole thing makes sense to them and they surround themselves with people who think the same, you know, appeals to consider the nature of science, appeals to consider the inquiry, appeals to rationality won't work. You also need a congenial environment for critical thinking, don't you? And I wonder if we're losing that when so much of our public discourse takes place on social media and amongst all this, this bad-tempered ranting where nobody's really listening to anybody else. And not just on social media. I mean, I think in some ways the media and even the ABC like to present debate as a, a gladiatorial, confrontational kind of exercise. If we've lost that respectful tranquility, if you like, in our discursive environment, then what good is even the, the best argument? Well, I think the problem is that we frame it all as debate, because the purpose of a debate is to win. And that's not what public reasoning is about. Public reasoning is about engaging in an intellectual process of argumentation with each other to try and determine what the truth is, to try and test our ideas against other people's uh, criticisms and to help them do the same and to collaboratively work towards some kind of solution. And in public reasoning, we don't want debates. We want arguments so that, look, here's what I suggest we should do. Here's what my belief is. Here are the reasons why I think that's the case. But even if we just do that, it's not enough because what's a meaningful reason to me may not be a meaningful reason to you. To really engage in public reasoning, what I have to do is try and find ways in which those reasons should matter for you, to understand your worldview and to say, look, this is why I think it can matter for you. And not to spin it, but to try and make it meaningful to you and ask that other people do the same for us as well. Otherwise, presenting our reasons is just another form of assertion. 
We need to engage with each other to understand why that matters. And that's what's missing in our public debate, as you say, because it is a debate, not an argument. And our social media platforms do not give us time to do that sort of social and collaborative thinking the way we wish. Uh, we only have time to tweet an assertion or to post an opinion that agrees with us. We can't engage in that kind of social cognition, which is so indicative and so important for developing good thinking skills. So that's the reason I think that we're not seeing it so much on social media or in the media in general. Well, there was a recent period in the history of philosophy when critical thinking went a little out of fashion. And there was this idea that the Enlightenment values of rationality and deductive reasoning were something historically employed by Europeans to devalue and dominate those who were perceived as deficient in critical faculties. So, you know, women, non-whites and so on. I wonder how you feel about that critique today, whether it still holds water or whether perhaps we've arrived at a point in this age of fake news where we just need to drop all the postmodern scepticism because that's getting a little dangerous. Well, I think there's a distinction between postmodern scepticism and critiques of the Enlightenment, uh, not necessarily going there. Um, if you think that all critical thinking is, is about the application of logic and argumentation in a kind of formulaic way, uh, then you're subject to those criticisms. Yes, you are. But, but as I say, rationality at, at root has to be about shared meaning and purpose because one of the great indicators of rational beings is that they're able to devise and attain goals. And so that in itself is not something that you can just do with, with pure logic. You know, the questions, the arguments as to why we ought to value this or that is where we have to engage with each other. Um, and those things can't be algorithmically decided. So they are about meaning and they are about value. Not every answer uh, is an empirical answer and not every answer that's valuable has an empirical answer. So once we, I think, accept that and we understand that the, the things that make meaning and the things that create value are dependent on our contexts, uh, sometimes that's social and sometimes it's, it's political, sometimes it's religious, and I'm not including necessarily just simple empirical studies in that, but there's so much more to what we are rationally than empirical investigation of the world. And that has to be shared and that has to be social. And I don't think that way of thinking is subject to the same kind of criticisms. When you look at the nature of our civic discourse today, how do you feel? I mean, as someone who teaches critical thinking involved in the education of, of young people, do you feel uh, pessimistic about the future of critical thought in our society or where do you think it's headed? I'm not pessimistic about the future of critical thought. I think we'll always have an understanding of what it is and, and how we need to pursue it. What I'm a little concerned about is whether people are willing to do that because uh, you have to have a reason. It's not as if you just tell people what critical thinking is and they'll naturally adopt that and say, well, that sounds good, I'll have some of that. Um, certainly as an educational goal, that all, you know, people do want that. But individuals are sometimes very happy with their worldviews. They're prosperous, they have a meaningful social life. Um, you know, it matters to them. So why they would change that and become something else, something that maybe they have argued against in the past, you know, it doesn't necessarily follow that people want to think well. Peter Ellerton from the University of Queensland's School of Historical and Philosophical Inquiry and founding director of the university's Critical Thinking Project. 
Peter has an excellent website that's full of resources for philosophers and educators in critical thinking. It's really interesting stuff, and we'll put a link to that on our website, which is also a goldmine of information and fascinating conversations like the one you've just heard. Just go to the RN website and look for the Philosopher's Zone on the program menu, or find us via the ABC Listen app or any other podcast app. Thanks to producer Diane Dean. I'm David Rutledge. I'll see you next time. Thank you.